0: All right, well, today we continue our journey through John chapter 12. And so before we move any further, uh, please allow me to pray for us and to beseech the Lord's mercy. Father, we praise you again and again and again, a thousand times over, Lord. We thank you for the time already that uh, we have had to sing and to pour our hearts out in adoration, thanksgiving, devotion and song congregationally, corporately, and I thank you that now, Lord, our worship continues as we humble ourselves before your living word, and we come hungry, Father, we come needy, we come uh, recognizing that we need to hear from you, and we trust that your Holy Spirit will minister to our hearts and challenge us and convict us, and I pray that you would be exalted to the highest place here in our presence, in our hearts, in our lives. And we thank you in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so uh, we got one more sermon ahead of us. Uh, After today, we'll be wrapping up John chapter 12. So we're nearing the end of chapter 12. And as you may recall, in the beginning of the chapter, we saw Mary anointing Jesus' feet and head with the very costly, fragrant oil perfume. And then after that, Jesus departed from there in Bethany and made his way into Jerusalem for the triumphal entry. God's appointed day. This is the last week of Jesus' life before He would suffer and die and rise again from the grave. So this is Passion Week. And so we talked about God's perfect timing. Everything happens according to His precise detail and His unstoppable plans. And last week, Jesus began to talk about, remember the the Gentile seekers, those Greek God-fearers came, they wanted an audience with Jesus, and that seemed to trigger Jesus to this place of recognizing His time was truly imminent. And it seemed to be symbolic of the fact that not only was salvation for the Jews, but far beyond the borders of Israel. And uh, God intended to save people from every tribe, nation, and tongue around the world. And so Jesus said that it had to happen this way, that His sacrifice was necessary. Remember, He said that a seed must go into the ground and die to uh, produce much fruit. And so we talked about the sacrificial love of Jesus. And with that, that kind of continues on today, and Jesus is essentially going to give us His purpose statement. He says that, for this purpose I came to this hour. And then He says basically three things, that He came to give glory to God. That was the purpose for this hour. Father, glorify Your name. Then He says that He has come to defeat our greatest foes, our greatest enemies, that the world and its ruler Satan would be judged and cast out. And then He says that He has come to draw all peoples to Himself through the cross. He said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all peoples to Myself. All of that is in our text today, and Jesus is going to do this through the cross, by means of the cross. He would give God the glory. He would judge the world and its ruler, Satan, and He would draw all peoples to Himself if He be lifted up. And so that is the text that is before us today. You know, there's a lot of confusion in the world, misunderstanding, and superstition about the cross. Would you agree with me on that? That is a very true statement. Let me first say that the cross is not merely a decorative piece. And I say it not merely because years ago, I was, I was at a, a church in Tennessee, and I was preaching, and I was leaning into it. And I said, the cross is not a decorative statement. And then afterwards, my pastor's wife, she said, Rob, you say that, but you have crosses tattooed on both your arms. And I was like, Yeah. So, it's not merely a decorative statement, okay, it is so much more than that. It represents something so profound, so sacred, so holy, so glorious. But what it is ultimately, it's, a, it's an implement of capital punishment, it's an it's a instrument of torture and, and murder. It would be equivalent to like wearing a, an electric chair medallion on my neck or, or something like that. It was, a, it was a brutal means of death. When uh, your fate is sealed and the Romans uh, condemned you to death, that would be one of the most horrible ways that you could go, but a person would be nailed to that cross, and they weren't going to come off alive, point blank. It's been said, uh, I think Leonard Ravenhill said, one thing you knew about a man carrying a cross out of town is that he wasn't coming back, point blank. And so the cross represents so much more than a decorative uh, emblem or decorative piece. And, you know, the cross is not a good luck charm. A lot of people treat it as though it were kind of a superstitious thing. I heard a story about a, a soldier in a foxhole in an intense battle in war and he looked down in the dirt beside him and saw something kind of slightly buried in the dirt. It was, he pulled it out, it was silver, it was a, a little cross. And so he's wiping it off and looking at it, and about that time a chaplain dives down into the hole and he says, man, I am so glad you're here. How do we work this thing? <laughs> and that's the way oftentimes we may look at the cross, right? You know, the cross communicates something so powerful. It communicates really It communicates, frankly, our own sin. It communicates that we are a people who have sinned against God and that God himself is a righteous judge who must judge that sin. But it communicates God's mercy and God's grace because God paid the price himself. Our sins were punished there on the cross, there on his own son, Jesus Christ, and it communicates God's love. And it communicates, I would say, our worth to God as well, that He would be willing to pay such a price, uh, such, a, such a high and, you know, very valuable price for us. And so I think that's amazing to me. All of those things are communicated there. And you know what? The cross never it does not ever need to be repeated. It was a once-for-all deal. That's how powerful it was. Jesus died for our sins once and for all. Amen? It's not something that has to happen over and over and over. And the cross is more powerful than the most heinous of sins, both nature and volume. I don't care how bad the sin is, and I don't care how much of it a person has committed, the cross is greater. You cannot outsin the cross. The cross is foolishness to the world, the Bible tells us. It's the foolishness, it's foolishness to the world, but it's the very power of God. People look at the cross and they think, that's silly, that's ridiculous. They're, they're repulsed by this idea of, of bloodshed on the cross and how that could somehow make us right with God. And people question it, they doubt it, they reject it, they mock it, but we're told in 1 Corinthians 1 that it is the very wisdom and power of God. The cross is central to the Christian message. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 that when He came to them, He knew nothing among them except Christ and Him crucified. It was the simplicity and the power of the true gospel. That's what Paul was about. That way, when the power of God went forth, they would know that it was the power of God. And it wasn't in persuasive words or eloquence or uh, you know, human charisma. It is truly the power of the cross, and it's central to the Christian message. We are to be identified with Jesus and His cross. We are a people of the cross. Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. and the life that I now live, in this flesh, I live for the glory of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. And so we are to be crucified with Christ. Jesus said that we are to take up our cross daily and live for him it's daily self-denial it is dying to ourselves and living for another and we are to make the cross our only boast what can we boast in except the cross of our lord jesus christ and that's exactly what paul says in galatians 6:14 god forbid that i boast except in the cross of our lord jesus christ by which i have been crucified to the world and the world to me amen So, all of that is bound up into the cross, and so much more, so much more. I could never truly communicate the glories of the cross with human language, and I think we'll spend all of eternity glorying in the Lamb of God, whose blood was shed on Calvary's cross for us. Amen? So, with that, we're going to talk about the victory of the cross, the victory of the cross. That's what we're going to be looking at today as we consider this text. And so I'd like to read this text to us. We're going to be looking at John chapter 12, verses 27 through 36. And so I will uh, read for us. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify Your name. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and I will glorify it again. Therefore, the people who stood by and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said that an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, this voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. This, he said, signifying by what death he would die. The people answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. And how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Then Jesus said to them, A little while longer, the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke and departed and was hidden from them. This is the word of the Lord, and may he bless it. So with that, I want to look at point number one, the cross. This is what Jesus accomplished, achieved. This was the victory that he won, and through the cross, Jesus gives glory to God. The cross of Christ gives glory to God the Father. Verse 27, he says, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Jesus says at this point, he begins to open up the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, that, that's not recorded for us in John, but leading up to the garden, John gives us some insight, letting us know that the agony had already begun. Jesus is already beginning to be deeply disturbed as he recognizes that his hour is upon him. And. Uh, I don't think, you know, my soul is troubled. That doesn't really communicate in my mind what's actually going on here. But the word is distressed, agitated, stirred up. You know that passage, I think it's in John 5 at the Pool of Bethesda, where they were waiting for the waters to be stirred up before they could enter in to be healed. The same word, that the waters be agitated. And so this is kind of the idea Jesus is beginning to be very um, perplexed, distressed, agitated, stirred up, because he knows the horrors that he will soon face. He knows full well the horror that he will soon face, and it's it's multifaceted. I mean, Jesus was fully man, truly man, truly God. He could sympathize with our weakness. He was tempted in every way, as we yet without sin. And so, I would say that He was absolutely horrified of the cross and everything that was going to come, the beatings, even the mocking, the, the ridicule, the abandonment by those closest to Him, uh, you know, the betrayal, just all, all, of, all of that, but not least of which the cross itself and the scourging and everything that He would go through. And we'll talk more about that as we, when we get there, but... I think He felt the full weight of that, but I also believe that more than that, it was the fact that He was going to experience the fury of the Father against Him on the cross. For all of eternity past, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, they did and continue to dwell in perfect harmony, unity. And for the first time, the son was actually going to incur the wrath of Almighty God upon himself, and I think that was probably the horror that perplexed or distressed him the most. But I would also add to that the sin weight, the sin guilt of the world that would be on him. I think that would far outweigh the agonies of the cross itself, the the second person of the Trinity, the, the Son, who had been perfectly pure and holy from all of eternity and remained pure and holy, even as He had never sinned, somehow, some way, bore on Himself the sin guilt of the world. Second Corinthians 5.21 says, For He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Galatians 3:13 says Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law having become a curse for us for it is written cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree he became a curse he became cursed for us 1 Peter 2:24 who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree that we having died to sins might live for righteousness by whose stripes you were healed And so for him to think about that, our sin, our sin, every sin was on him on the cross as he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As he suffered the wrath of Almighty God for us because of our sin on him. I think all of that was coming to bear down upon him at this point. And he said that my soul is agitated, troubled, distressed, But it was not as though Jesus could escape this hour, and He knew that. And that's exactly what what He says. Father, you know, what shall I say? Bail me out? Save me from this hour? He said, but this is why I came. Jesus knew what He came to do. He knew why He came. He came to die. He came to die for us. And Jesus was steadfastly resolute in his commitment to uh, fulfill the, the mission of the Father. There was a prophecy about Jesus in Isaiah 50, verse 7, and it says, For the Lord God will help me, therefore I will not be disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I will not be ashamed. He would not be deterred. This is Jesus speaking. And he is in Isaiah saying that God the Father is going to be with him. He's going to help him. He's going to steady him. And his face is set like a flint. Now, we know that's fulfillment. We see that same language even in Luke chapter 9. I love this. Luke chapter 9, as Jesus is beginning to make his way to Jerusalem, he's in Samaria, and says, now it came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. His face was set. We sang that line, I don't know if you noticed that, in that song, uh, Grace Alone, Jesus, your face was set. And what that means is, is that His focus, His attention, His determination was laser focused. He could not, He would not be deterred from doing the Father's will, amen? His face was set. He was going to go all the way. And he was going to do it for the glory of God. Jesus surrenders himself entirely to the glory of God. It's a full abandonment of self. I love this. He says, You know what? Father, glorify your name. It's just a release. I'm releasing, okay? I am placing myself into your perfect will, your perfect, loving, heavenly will. I'm trusting you. Even though I know what's coming, I know what I am about to experience. Father, glorify Your name. I love that. I don't know, I'm I'm sure we have all kind of been in that place where you don't understand why things are going on or you know that you're called to do something and with all your might, perhaps you don't want to or you're afraid of it, but you surrender yourself to it. Father, glorify Yourself. Glorify Your name. And then God does reply. The Father replies that He has... And He will do it yet again. This is the third time that that's recorded for us in the Gospels that the Father spoke from heaven. The first was at John the Baptist uh, when He was baptizing Jesus. The second was at the Mount of Transfiguration. And then here. He said, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. You know, it has been said that God's glory, I like this, God's glory is His weightiness and worthiness his beauty and brilliance, his superiority and supremacy, his prominence and priority in the world. That's the glory of God, amen? And Jesus was determined that the world would see the glory of God. And so I think that uh, the way of the cross for us means trying to do the same, trying to live the same way. That was the example that was set for us Do we live for the glory of God? We need to take inventory of the primary motivations of our lives. What are we living for, folks? What are we living for on a day-to-day basis? Because we're all living for the glory of something. We are all living for the glory of something, and if we're all honest, I think the tendency is to live for the glory of ourselves. That's what's just baked into the human nature after the curse, after the fall. We live in a world that is addicted to self. It wasn't that way when God created the world, Adam and Eve, but it became that way when they chose their own way. They chose to rebel against God, and the curse came. Everything went haywire. and Now, that which was God-given and God-blessed has become warped, perverted, distorted, twisted. For instance, marriage. Marriage is a gift from God. Yet somehow we can turn it into a thing of selfishness and self-seeking, expecting that the other person now I'm going to be satisfied. In fact, that's that's kind of the way people. You know, if we're honest, when we so badly want to be married, I think that that's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. God put that there. We should have that longing. If that's in your heart, praise God. Some people are called to be single, and I think that's a blessing too. Uh, but do not think that marriage is going to finally satisfy you and that now you'll be happy and fulfilled because uh, you'll find out real quick that that's just not not the case. And what what you're essentially doing is is you're putting that on someone else. It is your job, it is your duty, your responsibility to make me whole, to make me satisfied, to make me uh, full, complete. And uh, that's, that's all bad, and that is a battle in marriage. And we can even do that to our children. People can take something that is so blessed of God, having children, and they live for their children. In fact, I'm sure we've all seen it. When kids grow up and move out of the house, marriages even crumble because their whole marriage was built upon the children, living for the children. And somewhere along the line, the marriages, they fell apart And the only thing that was holding them together were the children. And then when the children move out, that becomes uh, very apparent. Or people live vicariously through their children. They are pushing their children to excel because they essentially are trying to maybe perhaps whatever dreams they had dreamed for themselves never came to pass. And now this is their chance to have it happen through their children. That's not fair to the kids, obviously. And so that's just another way in which... We can make things about us when it was never intended to be that way. Work work is a God-blessed thing. God gave work to Adam before the fall. Now, because of the fall, work was cursed. It says that now work is going to be difficult. It's going to be burdensome. You're going to work the ground by the sweat of your face, and it is going to bear thorns and thistles. But work itself was not part of the curse. But you know what we can do with work? We can find all of our identity in it. I've noticed that when you get to know somebody initially, uh, the first thing they're going to tell you is if you, uh, is what they do for a living. That's kind of what they will beeline towards, because make a beeline for, because that's really where their identity is so often, or they're obsessed with climbing the ladder or chasing after wealth. Even worship, worship something that was given to us to to be able to enter into when we're in right relationship with God, even that becomes distorted because what it essentially becomes about is me. How does it make me feel? Right? And I'm sure you've probably heard that a number of times or even thought or said that, but a lot of times people look for a church that has a certain kind of worship because of how it makes them feel, and that is deadly wrong. That is Uh, That's that's backwards. It's not about how it makes us feel. It's about lifting up the name of Jesus, giving God honor and glory. And we can treat churches like that. It's all about give me, give me, give me. And you can see Christians who will sit under Bible teaching for 10, 20, 30 years and it's feed me, feed me, feed me, right? But then they aren't really turning around and using it or, or in any way helping or serving others. And I just don't think that's the way God intended it to be. I don't think it's about spending decades just taking in and taking in and never giving out, right? It's just all about me. And and we're not giving any thought to others. And so those are real ways that can creep in that uh, we can give not God the glory, but we're living for the glory, the satisfaction of ourselves. Does that make sense? You know, the reality is our hearts seek self-promotion, self-glory, instant gratification, and self-gain. But when you live to satisfy yourself, you don't get satisfied. How many of us can, can amen that, relate to that? I've heard it said that everyone thinks 20% more of what they have would finally satisfy them. And don't we live like that? 20% more of what I have right now, I would f- then I would be good. We, we live in that place. And so that's, that's deceptive, deception. We've got to watch out for that. It does not work. It never will work because we weren't designed that way. We were designed to enjoy God and to glorify Him forever. Amen. We were designed to enjoy God, to give Him the glory. And I think that it is through the crucified life that we do this, that we most honor God. As Jesus gave glory to the Father through the cross... We're called to do the same because I've heard it said that the, the counterintuitive secret to finding joy is that the more that we die to ourselves for our own, our own personal longings, the more we find life and joy seeking the glory of God. It's counterintuitive. It goes against all human reasoning and thinking. But if we die to ourselves and live for the glory of God, there we find true joy. Amen. Amen. And so I just want to think about that, and isn't that what Jesus said? The seed must go into the ground and die in order to produce much fruit. Now that was true of Jesus. The seed had to go into the ground and die. Jesus had to die that the world through Him might live. But Christians, brothers, sisters, we have to follow that same example. If we really want to be fruitful in our own lives, if we want to bear much fruit for the glory of God then we too have to be that seed that goes into the ground and dies. First, we're talking about salvation itself. You know, we have, to, we have to die with Christ and be risen again into the newness of life through faith in Jesus. But then life becomes, and I'm not trying to be all doom and gloom here. Oh, we have to, you know, know it sounds kind of heavy, right? Um, I don't think of my life as me constantly dying all the time. You know, I think God... God is a loving Heavenly Father, and generally speaking, He blesses our lives, and the Christian life is one of difficulty, to be sure, but it is full of joy and peace and gladness and thanksgiving, amen? But on the same note, we are absolutely called to die, and I think a lot of that comes through by way of, by means of dying to self. The seed must go into the ground and die, and there are many practical ways in which this works itself out. You know, often the most honorable thing to do is not what we necessarily want to do. There's a battle there between what we ought to do and what we want to do, right? Can we relate to that? I would give a little story, you know, of, of, you know from my, my past experience. I'm looking. I'm not trying to make myself the hero of my own story. They always say that as a pastor, don't do that. Uh, but this is a real example from for me where I was you know one time put in this situation um, you know I was working uh for this guy, he was a Christian brother in Tennessee. I was getting ready to go into full time ministry uh but I was struggling financially already. Jess and I were married, and um you know times were hard and things things were tight and uh you know, I had come to work for this guy and he just didn't really, you know, I think, fulfill his side of the deal as far as um, compensating me the way that I had been led to believe. And at times, I think there was some friction between us on this. And, uh, you know, I was trying to communicate to him that how we were struggling, you know. And he would often say, Yeah, well, I am, I am too. You don't know the kind of debt and stuff that I have, right? And I said, Yeah, I get that, but your car's probably not broke down down the street without gas in it right now. and... That kind of, he was a little taken back by that, and so uh, I thought, I'm, surely I'm fired uh, after this conversation, you know, and so I went to lunch, and I came back, and he was out in the parking lot waiting for me, and I was like, oh boy, this is it. He's about to turn me loose, and he said, you know what, I was thinking about what you said, and you're right. I don't, I'm not, you know, struggling financially like you are, and so I want to give you this, and it was an envelope full of cash. And he started to hand it to me, he said, but I just want you to know this was what I was going to give to the missions trip at the church coming up, but I'm giving it to you instead. Do whatever you want with it. And I wanted to cry is what I wanted to do. I was upset. I needed that money, bad. And uh, I told Jess, and we already knew there was only one thing we could do with it, we got to give it to the missions, you know, can't keep that money. And I had to die to self, you know, and God took care of us, God blessed us, you know. But uh, we're in those kinds of situations all the time. Every day there are decisions that have to be made. Am I going to do what is, would seemingly be best for me, make me most comfortable in the moment? Uh, or, or are we going to choose to do that which is going to honor God? And uh, sometimes that's a very hard decision to make. And so. Uh, obedience such as the case obedience to God in matters of personal holiness can be downright painful when our flesh is screaming out and our flesh wants what our flesh wants it is so difficult sometimes to fight that and to say God glorify your name I'm trusting you right but that is when God I believe is most honored when we choose him over our own sin when we choose God over our own sin whatever that may be and I know that's a battle it's an uphill, and it's an uphill battle, and you have seasons of victory and seasons of struggle, and you get over one challenge and one sin struggle and another one creeps up. and it's just an ongoing thing as long as we are on this side of the, this side of glory. But that brings glory to God when we fight the fight, when we honor God in the little decisions every day. How we use our resources, our time how we manage our time for God, our money for God, our talents and gifts for God, when we could spend those things on our own pleasures, to be sure. But when we, you know, I I remember I was working with a guy years ago. We were uh, working at a grocery store, and I was trying to get him to come to church. And he said, man, Sunday, he was a professing believer, but he said, Sunday's the only day that I get to sleep in. And I said, man, I'm glad Jesus didn't have that attitude about going to the cross, You know, and so seriously, we got to suck it up. You know, sometimes there are things that we just, uh, it's like, no, Jesus paid a high price. We can, you know, we can step it up a notch. And so walking in humility, asking forgiveness, humbling ourselves, that can be downright painful. Extending forgiveness can be even more painful, excruciating even, but we're called to do it. Amen? Amen. And so, are we going to die to ourselves, die to our own pride, or whatever it is that holds us back? Or are we going to say, Father, glorify Your name and do whatever it takes to bring Him glory? And you know what? We can really glorify God, I would say, especially when no one is around. It doesn't have to be for onlookers to see. You know what I mean? Sometimes we tend to think that there has to be a crowd to see it. Let your light shine that the whole world may see the works of God and glorify Him. Yeah, absolutely. But I think sometimes we bring God the most glory in the quietness of our own lives and hearts. I've heard it said that um, it was at, the question was asked of a pastor, who do you think the best pastor, preacher is in the world or has been? And the answer the guy gave was great. He says, whoever it is, we've never heard of him. Probably somebody that had a congregation of 10 people somewhere in the middle of nowhere because God keeps his best for himself. He delights in it. And this is like, this parallels another question that I had heard asked really well. You know, if there is a beautiful rose in the middle of nowhere that no one else will ever see, is God glorified by that? Absolutely he is because it's his and he takes delight in it. He's pleased with it. It's beautiful in His sight. It's His creation, all right? And so oftentimes, the battles in our hearts and our minds, things that nobody else knows about, when we wrestle through that for the glory of God, He is glorified, amen? He takes great delight when His children do the hard thing for Him, for love's sake. That is what Jesus did. Jesus went all the way, all the way to the cross for the glory of God, because you know what the reality is, is that we do fail constantly. We don't live up to that. We do live for the glory of selves more than for the glory of God. So praise God that Jesus did what we couldn't do. Jesus truly lived for the glory of God, and He went all the way to the cross and perfected in us that which was lacking, so that through Christ Uh, we we have His perfections. And so, praise the Lord for that. That's the goodness of the gospel. And that's essentially what we're talking about here. When I talk about the cross, I'm talking about the gospel. You know, it's it's what Jesus accomplished through the cross, what the cross communicates. It's the, the gospel. Jesus died for sin, rose again from the grave. He is the great sin bearer. And that is the good news of the gospel. And so, for our part, if you trust Jesus and believe in Him, call upon His name for forgiveness and salvation, repent of your sins, you receive that forgiveness, and you receive that new life in Christ, born again from above, alive forevermore. And so, all of that is bound up in the cross. Well, I spent a lot more time on that one um, intentionally, and I'll move a little more quickly from here, and we may not even finish the text, but we'll see how we do. So, point number two, the cross of Christ brought defeat to our greatest enemies. Verse 29, therefore the people who stood by and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. And Jesus answered and said, this voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. And now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. So, it's hard to say what's going on here exactly. I want to say that what we see here is the the hardness of hearts on full display. The very voice of God comes down from heaven and someone says, oh, that's just thunder, right? Um, In Acts 2, when everybody began to speak in other languages and uh, proclaiming the glories of God and all these pilgrims from around the, the known world were hearing the glory of God in their own language. There were other people standing by and said, oh, they're just drunk. That's all. They're just drunk. And uh, Peter's like, no way, man. It's only 9 o'clock in the morning. Now, I'll say that don't stop some people, you know. Um, But, yeah, that's that's the condition of sinful men, right? That's our heart. Uh, That's not God. No, that wasn't Him. And uh, Jesus assures them that this voice came for their sake. It's, it's essentially, it came more for you than for me. And so the question is, how so? And some have said that this was, this was an assurance from the Father to Jesus to help Jesus to steady and stabilize Him to go all the way ultimately for their sakes because they would be the beneficiaries of what Christ would ultimately accomplish, right? And that sounds good to me, but Jesus says that now both the world and its rulers are judged, the world and its ruler, the world and Satan himself. I like how uh, one, one pastor, Skip Heitzig, describes the world. He says, the, the system of thought and ideology controlled by the devil, involving billions of people who are in rebellion against God, the ordered philosophical system poised against God, that's the world. When we talk about the world, obviously, we're not necessarily talking about you know, the, the planet, we're talking about the, the inhabitants of it who are under this corrupt, deceived system of thinking and living, philosophically, ideologically, and it is all under the sway of Satan. The Bible describes Satan as the ruler of this world as uh, even the god of this age, if you will. and so uh, it's, that is what Jesus came to destroy. And he says that through the cross, they would be defeated, that they were defeated. Now, how, how does that happen exactly? And it, it kind of raises some other questions. So as I have said before, I think that one of the major ways in which Satan was defeated at the cross is that Jesus takes away his ability to accuse. That's what he does. He stands before the throne and accuses us, night and day, we're told. And so, there is no accusation against God's elect, those who have called upon the name of Jesus, Paul says in Romans chapter 8. It's been taken away. He's a roaring lion that has been defanged and declawed. You understand? He can still try to gum us to death, uh, and believe me, he can be vicious, you know. Um, He can still do much damage, we know. But ultimately, his power has been removed from him. Now, I heard a good illustration. I like this. Have you ever been stung by a dead bee? Have you ever had that happen? Uh, that's, that's a trip, isn't it? Especially probably when you don't realize that could happen. But uh, you see a bee, you think it's dead, you pick it up and it stings you. And you're like, it throws you off, right? Well, I would say in, in a certain way, that's kind of what it's like. You know, Satan has been defeated. His end is certain, and uh, in a lot of ways, uh, His power of accusation and condemnation, uh, Him holding us as, as blind slaves, has been taken away from Him at the cross. But on His way to His certain end, He is still doing as much damage as He can do. He can't cause us to lose our salvation. He can't take our salvation. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, but His goal is to render us ineffective, to take us out to destroy our testimony, to cause division, to try to do whatever He can to stop and thwart the work of God and the glory of God. What we are living in, if I haven't lost you already, let's reel it back in, what we are living in is what is sometimes called the now and not yet of the kingdom of God. There are certain realities that we are living in right now that we could say are true of the kingdom of God. The kingdom has come. The king has come, Jesus. He's inaugurated his kingdom at the cross. He's ransomed us, and he has made us loyal subjects of his kingdom and kingship. Amen? Wherever the people of God are, there's the kingdom of God. We are his loyal subjects. But there are certain things that continue on that one day will be no more. When Jesus returns and fulfills his kingdom completely, Satan will truly be cast out. He will be cast down to the lake of fire. And on that day, not only the penalty of sin and the power of sin, but the very presence of sin will be no more. It will be cast out. And so we live in this in-between place where Satan has been defanged, if you will, to a degree, and uh, the kingdom is now but not yet. And so we long for, we look for the day. When Jesus returns, amen, to set up his kingdom. But you need to know that, folks. You need to know that. I know that we struggle. I know that we, we doubt. I know that we have fear. I know that we have sin. But look, Satan does not have claim to us anymore. He does not have claim to us like he used to. We used to be slaves of sin. We used to be children of Satan. We used to be dead. We used to be totally hardened and calloused and opposed to God under satanic blindness, and that has been taken away by the cross. Amen? And one day, we will stand in complete glory. And so, I, you know, I just think even the struggle, I talk about this a lot, but even the struggles that we experience, glory to God. Because when I was outside of Christ, there were no struggles. I just lived in my sin with full and reckless abandonment. And I gave no consideration to the things of God or His goodness or His holiness. And so now the very fact that there is a battle tells me that Christ is in me, that I am alive by the Holy Spirit and I am fighting the battle. Amen? And one day the battle will be completely won and there will be no more sin. No more sickness, no more death, no more sorrow, and that is because of the victory won at the cross. And this brings us to our last and final point, that the cross of Christ brings salvation to God's people. They will be called, they will be drawn. He says that if I am lifted up, I will draw all peoples to myself. This he says signifying by what death he would die, verses 32 and 33. And so, you know, some understand being lifted up as meaning uh, praising and exalting. Jesus says, if I be lifted up, if I be praised, if I be worshipped, if I be exalted, I'll lift all peoples, I'll bring all, draw all peoples to myself, right? And I, I could see that, but that's not what he's saying here, because it says that he's signifying by what, by what death he would die. And I think that's important to note, because there are actually songs that are written from this verse that are saying really the opposite of what he's saying here. And so Jesus is clearly saying that when he is lifted up on Calvary's cross, through the cross, the the atonement, through the resurrection, all people would be drawn to him by means of the cross and the gospel. Now, this doesn't mean that every single person in the world is going to be saved. and We know that, right? Narrow is the way that leads to life, and there are few that will find it. Wide is the road that leads to destruction. Jesus said it Himself. And we don't believe that everybody in the world is going to believe in Jesus and trust Christ for salvation and be saved. Now, the, the gospel message is to be proclaimed throughout all of the world. Amen? God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not die Uh, should not perish, but have everlasting life. But what he's talking about here, this word drawn, this is talking, I believe, specifically about salvation. This isn't just like a a drawn in the sense of I'm feeling kind of like wooed or compelled, but I may stop short. See what I'm saying? Like sometimes when we think about drawing, being drawn in, there's this sense of, you're attracted to it, but you don't necessarily, you know, go the distance. That's not the word here. This word drawn, this to be consistent here in John 6, 44, it says that no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. You see that, how those are connected? So, when we are drawn to God, we come completely, fully, and we believe savingly and Jesus will never lose us. Amen? He will never lose us, but will raise us up on the very last day. That's what Jesus is doing. He is by means of the cross, the gospel, the resurrection, the Holy Spirit, God's grace is drawing God's people to Himself. And that's what Jesus says in John chapter 10, verse 15. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep, and other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them I must also bring in, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. So God is busy saving sinners out of the world, and He is drawing His people to Jesus. He is drawing them and calling them out of death into eternal life by means of the cross. That is the way, that is through the glorious gospel. Amen. It is through the sacrificial cross of Jesus Christ that we are drawn unto salvation, that we are called into His glorious light. Now, what do the people do with this? In verse 34, the people answered Him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. And how can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So now the people want to have a theological debate with Jesus. And this is the beginning of the final turning away because chapter 12 marks the final um, rejection of Jesus where his earthly ministry ends. And he turns his attention to his disciples in chapter 13. And so we see it happening right here. And so the people challenge Jesus' claim and then they say, who is the son of man? And so you can tell this is kind of like skeptical. It's a tone of skepticism. But you know what? Jesus doesn't even try to debate debate with the people. You know why? He's been doing that for three years. He's been doing it for three years. You know what He does? He simply makes one last plea for them to receive the light of the world. Verse 35, then Jesus said to them, a little while longer, the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of the light. These things Jesus spoke and departed and was hidden from them. So there it is, Jesus departed from their sights. Jesus said, I'm only going to be with you for a short time. And Jesus extends this passionate plea to walk in the light, to come to the light, to trust the light, to be children of the light to become children of God, to no longer walk in darkness, but to be sons and daughters of the light. Now, similarly, we have a limited time. For those who haven't trusted Jesus, we don't know how much time we have. We don't know when the Lord will return, and we don't know when we will be called out of this life. You just don't know what a day will bring. And so there's going to come a point when the opportunity, the invitation... No longer stands on that day when we stand before him. And if you have trusted Christ, if you are a child of light, you will be welcomed in by a loving father who will say, Well done, good and faithful servant, enter in. But if you don't know him as father here and now, you will know him as judge on that dreadful day. And so now, while you have the opportunity, While you have the opportunity, today is the day of salvation, call upon His name, become a child of the light. Jesus is the light of the world, amen? And as long as you are in Him, you will not walk in darkness, because you have the light of the world. It's as simple as saying, Jesus, I need you, forgive me, I have sinned. I have sinned against you, I have sinned against God and I need your forgiveness. And I'm going to turn away from my old life. I'm going to turn away from those things that hurt your heart, and I'm going to walk with you. Help me. Fill me with your Spirit. Save me. I want to be born again. That is the beginning of it all. And so if you don't know Him, you can know Him today, and you can pray that prayer right in your own heart and mind, right where you sit. Or if you're watching online right now, Jesus says, come. Come while you have the opportunity. Come, for now is the day of salvation. Amen? Amen. All right, well, let's pray. We love you, Lord. We thank you for the cross, the glories of Calvary. There where our glorious and precious Savior died for our sins, you rose again from the grave three days later, declaring victory. Victory over Satan, victory over the world, victory over sin and death. We are delighted to be called yours, to be called children of the living God. Thank you for the victory of the cross. Help us to live for your glory. Lord, help us to live our lives in the way of the cross. The seed must go into the earth and die, that it may prosper that it may bear much fruit. May we be fruitful Christians for you, Father. In Jesus' name. Amen. Shall we stand? Um, we're not going to have a song today, Pastor Dan's in the Children's Ministry, but I just want to send us out with a blessing. <sighs> may God go before you this week. May He make His face to shine upon you. May He lift up your countenance. May He give you strength, resolve, joy, and peace. May He give you all that you need to live the Christian life for His glory this week. May He use you for His own good and divine purposes. May you be salt and light in this very dark world for the glory of God. In Jesus' name, amen.